Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, in a world of bling and designer labels, are we all keeping up with the Joneses? I mean, in a way, there is a positive side to sharing this global culture, that we have this commonality. But what I've seen from kids in L.A. is a common love of Versace. So it's kind of like that's the new common culture. I'm talking with Lauren Greenfield, photographer and award-winning documentary maker, about her latest project on our relationship to wealth and hedonistic lifestyle. There's one of the characters, Limo Bob, who has the biggest limos in the world and wears 30 pounds of gold, who said he loves Trump and Trump kind of reminds him of him. Lauren's latest project, Generation Wealth, is a culmination of three decades she spent photographing and interviewing people around the world about their relationship to money. In it, she argues that we're living in a time of unprecedented obsession with wealth and status. You haven't worn your bling today. (laughs) So conspicuous consumption, I would suggest, is hardly new. Rich people have always wanted to show off their wealth from the Fabergé eggs of Imperial Russia to the estates of European aristocrats. Why is this generation wealth? Well, I do think that the form of it has changed and is more outward, that there used to be a value of discretion and modesty. And old money, even American old money, did not show it as kind of outwardly as we do now, whereas I think now it's so important to show it very conspicuously on the outside to the point where many people who actually don't have money are equally interested in what some of the characters like Future the Rapper called fake it till you make it. And so you see this kind of conspicuous consumption, which is a show not necessarily the substance of real wealth. Introduce us, if you could, to some of the characters that we would meet if we flick through Generation Wealth. It's kind of an array of humanity in the sense that it's not a project about the wealthy. It's not a project about the 1%. It's as much about the aspiration as it is the goal. So the characters range from Future the Rapper, who became a highly successful rapper after starting on the streets of Atlanta, kind of from the American dream. The work starts in the 90s in L.A., which is where I'm from, and there's a character, Adam, who we see dancing with a go-go dancer at his bar mitzvah party in Hollywood at 13, and in his interview, he talks about how money ruins kids. There's the Queen of Versailles, Jackie Siegel, who were in a film that I made about billionaires who built the biggest house in America, a 90,000-square-foot palace inspired by Versailles, and they too got caught up in the foreclosure crisis. And the crash was a moment of crisis that kind of brings many of the characters together in a kind of fall that turns many of the stories into a morality tale. And you also 
turn it outwards. You look at Russian oligarchs' wives. You go to Hong Kong. This isn't just an American book. But the story does begin with Los Angeles and then widens out to the rest of America and then wider into the rest of the world. And to what extent do you think those American, specifically West Coast values of consumerism, interlaced with celebrity, culture, and it would be fair to say, looking at it, you know, a, a certain sort of self-obsession... Is that such a specific West Coast thing? Or is that just you notice it because you come from there? Well, that's a really interesting question. I think it started kind of with the influence of Hollywood for me and how that brought on the kind of the cult of celebrity and image and the values of materialism. And I thought it was just kind of where I started with kids in L.A. because I came from there. But when I looked back at this 24-year journey, I saw that a lot of these trends actually start there. And I think the media that is exported from Hollywood nationally, but also now internationally, has been a driver of many of these values. And you talk about people imitating these values. But in fact, it struck me, looking at the book and and then watching clips from the film last night, that in fact, they are rather different worlds. There's the world of people who have made immense money, who are kind of wondering what to do with it and can't find anything else so that they're doing the things that uh, they're building the largest house. Kind of by accident, she says at one point, as if as if this could befall you, like you know, sort of being hit by lightning. And then you have people who clearly don't have enough money, who are aspiring, but they're aspiring in a way that they can never get there. And I wondered if you really felt their psychology was the same. Well, I think the Queen of Versailles is a perfect example of how we never get there. They have a 26,000 square foot what I would call starter mansion, and then it's not big enough, so they need 90,000 square feet. They go from 15 bathrooms to 30 bathrooms. And both Jackie and David had started with humble origins, so this was kind of like the culmination of the American dream. And I think what we see, we see a socialite from Toronto who has four what she calls seasonal closets they they overflow, and then she takes over the wine cellar and makes it into a new shoe closet. So I think what it shows at the high end is that we never have enough. And then you have a teenager in L.A. who talks about how you want something so much, and then when you get it, you go on to the next thing. We have a um, dental assistant in Mexico who spends her savings on a Louis Vuitton bag, which makes her so happy only to then feel like, what's next? And here's a glimpse of the Queen of Versailles. My name is David Siegel. My name is Jacqueline Siegel. I am the founder, CEO of the largest timeshare company in the world. I'm a 43-year-old mother of eight. I thought she was the most beautiful girl in the world. It took me a while to fall in love with him. We have a great relationship. There's 30 years between us, but he doesn't need Viagra. At least there is that option if he does, like, I don't know, 10 years from now. (laughs) We never sought out to build the biggest house in America. It just kind of happened. It's bigger than the White House. And it came to a screeching halt. The market fell over 700 points. I would say it's touch and go right now. We don't talk about financial problems. I guess I'll have to watch the movie to find out (laughs) what's going on in my life. But consumerism's also been a force for social cohesion, hasn't it? To the extent that, of course, 
not many people can get a Louis Vuitton bag, even if they aspire to it more than anything else in the world, but they can. Most people on a reasonable income with aspirations uh, to do a bit better can buy nice things, and they want to do it. You know Russia, I know Russia. We've seen societies, China is, is a place you look at now, emerging from periods when consumerism was frowned on, and it's the first thing people want to do. It's such a strong force. Does that not give you second thought that there might be more to it? It might have a defence to put up. Well, I think that it, there is a rush of adrenaline and a feeling of like thing you're, you're getting better, you're improving. That is part of what makes it the addiction. And I think that, I mean, in a way, there is a positive side to sharing this global culture that we have this commonality. But what I've seen from kids in L.A. to an executive in China to rappers in Atlanta is a common love of Versace. So it's kind of like that's the new common culture. And I think that the issue with global capitalism kind of being our common ground is I was very influenced by the social critic Chris Hedges, who I interview in the book, who talks about how the values of global capitalism take over and destroy authentic culture. And authentic culture gives us the ability to kind of self-criticize and gives us other values that offer kind of a countervailing foundation than the kind of ultimately empty values of global capitalism. Well, you know, I'm with you to the point where you start to talk about global capitalism <laughs> as if there was some ready-made alternative and it, everything else has been tried as a lot worse. Well, Again, does that not give you pause for thought? I don't mean you... a political alternative. I'm talking about values. So I'm not talking about capitalism versus communism. I'm talking about more that I think that we used to be in a culture where traditional values came from history came from religion, came from community, came from institutions, and they offered, in a way, people a little bit more meaning than just bigger and better, which is kind of ultimately an unending and what a lot of the characters report as empty kind of venture, a kind of soul-killing process. You suggest that Donald Trump came out of this culture, and I suppose as, as the, the king of, of bling now with the most important house in America at his disposal, the White House, that is uncontroversial. But what is it that you think drives him through the political process from this basis of building big towers, being the incarnation of that kind of glitzy aspiration? Why do you think that has worked so well for him? Well, one of the things that I think is kind of uniquely American is that people who are not rich in America don't hate the rich. They don't resent the rich. They always imagine that will be them someday. There's almost kind of a a goodness or a moral quality to having money. And so I think there was a kind of admiration for Donald Trump because he was rich. It's also a product of celebrity culture. He was a reality show star, and there's value in that today in America. Were you less surprised then to see him become president than many American liberals who are still clutching their pearls or whatever the liberal equivalent is of pearl clutching? You know, I wish I could say I predicted it. I really was as surprised as anybody else. But then looking at the work I've done, I kind of felt like the writing was on the wall. The writing is in the pictures. It makes sense. There's one of the characters, Limo Bob, who has the biggest limos in the world and wears 30 pounds of gold, who said he loves Trump and Trump kind of reminds him of him. (laughs) But only greater, he said. It's all about me. Well, that's, of course, the other piece of it is the narcissism. And he really embodies that quality of generation wealth. 
There's a section of your book called The Fall that focuses on places hit hardest by the 2007-8 financial crash. What did you find out from visiting those places? And was their response, their cultural response? Of course, you're I'm putting on you, you're on the, the spot here verbally, but you're a photographer. It's the images that, that lead you to your conclusions about a place. Did they look different after the crash. And I should say this is not a classic photography book in the sense that there are 150 interviews in it. And so you really hear from the stories of the people it's in the essays pictures. And, and, and pictures. What happened in the fall, and in a way that's really where this work coming together began, is that I saw very similar consequences and also very similar failings from very diverse people, from the suburbs of California to a billionaire family in Florida to Dubai, to Iceland, to Ireland. And when I saw this kind of huge devastation that was almost like apocalyptic in some of its imagery with green fetid pools, abandoned homes, family photos just strewn and left on the floors of foreclosed houses, it kind of spoke to me like a morality tale about how we had gone too far, we had over-leveraged, we had bitten off more than we could chew. We had wanted too much, too big, and this was somehow the consequence. But it seemed to worry you that people weren't taking it on board or didn't change their behavior enough afterwards, apart from the family in Iceland, one of whom had been in in Icelandic financial services, which came a bit of a cropper. And we saw them all then sitting around knitting. And I just thought, you know, how many people really could be very happy going from, from professional life to knitting their own soup? But you were quite impressed by them. Well, because in Iceland, I mean, first of all, Iceland, now the economy has really come back. They kind of went back to their knitting literally and metaphorically and actually made a business out of it. So in a way, they were a case study for being able to change their values and also have commercial success at the same time. But I think for a lot of the other people, the question was more, are these insights and are is this change limited to the moment of suffering? And I think with David and Jackie Siegel from The Queen of Versailles, we saw that at the end of the movie, David has learned big lessons. He said he shouldn't have built so big. No one is without guilt. He sees himself as complicit. But after his business recovers, he gets the house. He he borrows money to get the house back from the bank. And he still, five years later, is in the process of building this house. It's kind of like Sisyphus climbing the hill. Things do change a bit. And I think if you look at something like the, the legacy of Gordon Gecko, you focus on the worst perpetrators of irresponsible uh, banking. And they're absolutely fascinating. Of course, we all want to look at the worst perpetrators. But you know, just to be a bit nitty gritty about it, banks are now subject to stricter regulation, everything from mandatory stress testing to capital requirements. If anything, it makes life difficult for banks who want to lend to people who need to get on a ladder of prosperity. So I suppose I wonder whether there is a narrative that says nothing ever changes. But in fact, things do change. It's just the boring things that change and they don't get photographed. Well, I'm not sure it's changed that much in the U.S. in the sense that now we are trying to roll back a lot of the regulation from post-crash and debt is reaching 2008 proportions in the U.S. So I think that I'm really interested in the human behavior that kind of took us there. I really wasn't looking at the top down in terms of the perpetrators of the banks or the mortgage brokers, that kind of I I kind of feel like we've seen that. I was really looking at the human behavior that allows them to take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And I think that a lot of the seeds for the human behavior are still the same. And I think a lot of that comes from what 
Lil Magic, a character from a strip club in Atlanta, says, we don't know the difference between entertainment and reality. And I think, um, in a way, the election of Donald Trump is a little bit like that, to elect somebody who has no experience in the job. It's almost like he, the, a kingpin or a rap promoter says, looking the part is as important as being the part. And so I think that that part makes us vulnerable to another crash and another incident. You work in an essentially visual medium, and there is something seductive about looking through the, these pictures. I mean, they're, they're enjoyable to, to look at, even as they're challenging. Do you see any contradiction there, the fact that the values of consumerism are spread by the glossy image? I've always tried to use the image, and, and particularly very saturated colors, glossy surfaces, and even some of the tropes and images of popular culture in the pictures to speak and comment about that world. And so I think it brings you in, in in a way, by the superficial things that attract us, but then takes you on a journey that is deeper and more substantive. In a way, it's a serious look at the superficial. But it's also the words are very important, both the captions and the interviews, because sometimes they do contradict what we see on the surfaces. For example, there are a lot of people who look rich who are not actually rich, and it's kind of like the fake it till you make it thing. You might not understand that if you didn't read beyond. And so I think that contradiction of image versus substance is very present in the format as well as the content. Finally, I wondered where it left the professional middle class, we hardworking souls, the salariat, we have to turn up and earn our money, but we want to earn a bit more of it. Thank you very much if our, our companies or bosses will pay us. And when I came to, to see you at the launch, I parked my good evening handbag in the garderobe. You know, you were looking quite foxy. You had your nice leather jacket on. <laughs> and I wondered whether you felt that there's a, a, a bit of a turning outwards that we, you know, we see bling as something that is manifested either in extreme wealth and we sort of look down on the tastelessness of it. And at the same time, we feel sorry for people who can't get onto a wealth ladder at all. What should we be thinking about when it comes to our own values as well as other people's? Well, first of all, I think we're all complicit. I mean, the point in this book is really to see how it affects people from so many different places. And I think the thing about the middle class is they're very present in the book, but they're almost hidden because of their aspiring and the kind of democratization of luxury. So like many of the people who are getting plastic surgery in the aging section, for example, are actually middle class. Over 75% of people who get plastic surgery make $50,000 or less. So these things that used to be luxuries for the rich are actually now kind of aspiring lifestyle pieces for the middle class. I mean, one of the things in architecture, for example, is the, the rise of modernism, which for cultured, middle class, and educated people is considered such a nice aesthetic, but it's actually incredibly expensive. So it's, it's in a way, another justification for materialism that would maybe be frowned on by that class. And has it changed your own relationship with materialism or, or shopping? I'm, I kind of wonder how you can bear to go shopping now. <laughs> I actually do try to stay out of big shopping places because I do see how when you go into those environments, 
you see the shiny things, you see the advertising, and of course you want it. So I try to be conscious of that happening to me. I was in, I stopped at Target a couple weeks ago with my 10-year-old, and we just stopped to use the bathroom and get a coffee. And all of a sudden, I had a cart, and I was putting like 10 things in my cart. And my son said, what are you doing, Mom? We didn't come here to go shopping. And I put an item on the register, and it comes up as $50. And he says, what is that? And it was a jar of face cream. And my 10-year-old said, put it back. And so I was happy he he saw that. But I also realized like how silly this was that I was like buying into this. And so I think in a way, the point of the book is to kind of see the matrix that we're in and give us some power to kind of see beyond it. Lauren Greenfield, thanks very much. Thank you so much. And Lauren Greenfield's book, Generation Wealth, is published by Fiden Press. If you've any thoughts on our relationship to money and the rise of bling, do put them in a gold-encrusted email and send them my way, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist, or you can find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 